Gospel of John, back to the Gospel of John, which is where we've been for so long together, and we continue through John 19. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 37. John 19, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. Again, hear God's word. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately, blood and water came out. And he who has been, who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we continue in your presence this morning in worship, honoring and praising you in song and hearing directly from you, from your word. And Lord, we look forward now to the portion of the service where we hear your word preached. Lord, I pray that you would use this vessel for your purposes and that your word would go forth unhindered and that what you desire to be said from this text will be said. Lord, our congregation has many needs And we're thankful that you sustain us with daily bread, with breath, with water. All of our daily needs you provide for us, even things beyond what your own son had, a place to lay our head. Lord, there are just many needs within our church, whether they be physical or whether they be spiritual. And I pray that you would continue to be with our church and that you would help us to walk in faithfulness You would help us to walk according to your word. We would heed it. We would love it. We would be sure to have your lamp, your your word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I pray that we would be distinctly a people of the book. Lord, there are needs beyond that. Family members that are hurt and sick, even within our own congregation, not feeling well. Lord, all of these things are burdens to us, and we pray that you would Heal where healing is needed. Guide where guidance is needed. We're thankful that we have a loving shepherd who will walk through us, with us through difficult seasons. And so I pray for all those who are working through difficult seasons right now and that they would feel your love and tender care close to them even now. We continue to pray specifically for Gabe DeRapps. Lord, I pray for healing in his body, that you would help him as he continues to advance and and the difficulties with 
with everything that the Duraps have had to endure with that scenario, I pray for grace for them. And Lord, I also pray for the Streds and their situation with Jenny. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to help her to progress and to heal. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would bring about great restoration there. And then, Lord, also, as many know of baby Gus connected with Brandon Fowley and friends of his with the infant who had a recent heart transplant, I pray, Lord, that you would bring about a strong heartbeat with that new little heart that Gus has. I pray that you would be with that family, with Mark and his wife, as they continue to work through this and all of the financial challenges and the struggles with work and all the rest that surely must be mounting on them and above all their little baby. I pray that you would be with that family as they continue through this trial. And Lord, again, we come to your word ready to receive it by your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would do a great work within our hearts. And I pray this all in Jesus name. Amen. Well, as we've traveled through several years in John's gospel, one of the facets that I've come to delight in as I've observed Jesus through this time is that Jesus is always in control. You never come to a chapter or a verse where it seems as though the situation is outside of Jesus's grasp, that the moment is just a little too big for him, right? There's never a moment where Jesus is kind of clueless in how he should act or what he should say or how he should work through a certain situation. He's never out of control. He's always in perfect control of every situation. So every encounter that he has with his disciples, doesn't he handle his disciples perfectly, always? Every foolish thing they say, every direction they think they should go and otherwise, Jesus always has a way to work through that with them. He knows how to respond to them. He knows how to encourage them. He knows exactly what to say and when to say it because he's aware of absolutely everything there is to be aware of. And so Jesus can engage the subject perfectly, always in control. It's the same with all of the religious leaders. Anytime a religious leader comes to Jesus, it's impossible for them to stump him on any level because he's in control. He knows what's going on in their heads. And even more than that, he knows what's going on in their hearts. So he can, he can deal with them appropriately because he's fully aware of everything that needs to be aware of. Jesus is completely in control. Even as we've been looking over the last couple of chapters and Jesus is before Pilate and you might say, well, surely it seems like Jesus is out of control in this situation. If, if he was in control, he wouldn't be enduring all of this suffering. But what comes uh, very much apparent? is that Jesus is completely in control of that situation as well as he stands there before Pontius Pilate that everything that is happening to Jesus is happening because it was foreordained of the Father before the foundations of the world and they were all acting in compliance with the will of God. It wasn't God acting in compliance with the will of man. So Jesus is always in control while he is physically present on the earth. But then this moment comes toward the end of John 19. And Jesus has just breathed his last breath. His torments were over, right? You remember his great victorious cry, it is finished, right? This was not a a cry of somebody who had had finally been beaten. This isn't the, the cry of somebody who has finally succumbed to all of the things that they had fully wanted to do to him. This is the cry of somebody who has just 
uh, claimed victory over sin, over Satan, over the powers that were against him. And so this is where Jesus is. He's cried, it is finished. This is not a cry of defeat. He is truly Christus victor. And so this is key as we come into this chapter or the, the end of this chapter here. What we find this morning is something unlike what we've seen throughout the Gospel of John. The Spirit of our Lord has ascended into heaven. After all, did he not promise a thief on the cross that he would be with him in paradise that very day? But for the first 33 years, Jesus has lost control of his body in a sense, hasn't he? He has, he's died. He's no longer causing himself to breathe. He's no longer saying certain things from the cross. He has lost control in this sense. You remember it is the week of Passover, which is a huge deal for all of the Jews. And because of Passover, they are extra sure to remain scrupulous as to the law of Moses and all of the expectations that come with that so that they may fully participate in Passover for themselves and otherwise. For instance, you remember that moment, don't you, when they come to Pilate and they refuse to even go into Pilate's house, don't they? Why do they refuse to go into Pilate's house? Because it's the week of the Passover, and if they're going to go into a Gentile's house, what's that going to do to them? It's going to make them unclean. And so they are then not able to participate in Passover as those who have been made unclean. But there was another law that was at risk of being broken that would bring about a great uncleanliness. And that was the bodies hanging on the cross. And this is referenced in verse 31. Look at verse 31 with me. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies may not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. What's going on here is a very specific Mosaic law regarding the hanging of bodies. They're not allowed to remain on the cross for a certain duration. Also, you see that this is an articulation of who or what is unclean if a body hangs on a tree when it is not supposed to. So the whole thing that's going on here, just like with Pilate's house, is a ceremonial uncleanliness. Right? So you have all of these things that would make you ceremonially unclean. For a Jew, for instance, this week, if they were to touch a dead body, that would make them ceremonially unclean. Childbirth would make you ceremonially unclean. A menstrual cycle would make you ceremonially unclean. Certain diseases would make you unclean. And so then if you come in contact with a person who is unclean, then what, does, what happens then? Then you become unclean as well. But in this specific case, in verse 31, what you find here is what Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy 21. He says this, His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So what does this continue to show about these Jews? 
it continues to show their scrupulous adherence to the religious expectations of Moses. They are so willing and happy to maintain every aspect of the ceremonial law or laws pertaining to the land, and and despite the fact that they had just committed the greatest injustice that could ever be committed. So very much willing, let's get the bodies off of the tree, but also very willing to unjustly kill an innocent man like Jesus. And so with hands full of blood, the Jews continue to maintain their shiny religious exteriors. And this is a temptation of all of those who are religious, isn't it? True religion is good and wonderful, but religion that doesn't go any further beyond the exterior is no good at all. Anybody can can clean up the outside. Anybody can put a new paint job on a rusty truck. But what's under the hood matters. These Jews were straining at the gnat of the impure land when they had just swallowed the camel of killing an innocent man. And so the the Romans, for their part, preferred to leave the bodies on the cross for as long as they could. Why? In order to serve as a reminder not to cross them again. You think of the the various birds and all of the rest that would come and pick on the sun-dried bodies as the body is left there day after day and the body is being dried by that scorching sun and the birds would come and pick on the bodies and that would serve as a constant reminder to all. Don't cross us again. Don't do something like that. Or you'll end up like that. I love what one author said. Don't miss this. He said, the Jews think the corpse of the Son of God is the source of their defilement at Passover, when in reality, his flesh is the true Passover lamb and the only source of true purification. So here they are looking at uh, Jesus on the cross and saying, hey, we got to get these bodies off of the cross because that's going to bring impurity to our land when in reality, Jesus was the only one who could provide actual purity for them. He was the only one who could actually bring about the purification that they so desperately needed. And so their, 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 their flesh might be clean. The Jews might have a clean exterior. They might be bodily clean. Their land might be clean. They may not have the diseases. They may not have touched the dead body. But the problem with the Jews is the problem that Jesus had pointed out for three years. On the inside of them, there were nothing but dead man bones. They were dead. Clean on the outside. Unclean on the inside. And here in this moment, for the sake of the land, and that it would not become unclean, they completely missed what would make them clean. And that was the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, whose blood can make the foulest clean. And so what you find here in verse 31 is that they're concerned about this law, and then Pilate apparently uh, says, okay, he acquiesces, and he is going to acquiesce with what the Jews want, and he makes sure that the task of making sure the body comes down ends up happening, and you find this in verse 32. Look there with me. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, and of the other who was crucified with him. Now, this was certainly a common enough practice. 
You remember, in order for those on the cross to be able to breathe, they would have to rely on their pinned feet to the cross to lift up from their feet in order to fill up their lungs with air. And so they were constantly using their legs to push themselves up so that they could breathe. Well, if you break their knees, if you break their legs, of course, they can no longer push themselves up uh, from their feet in order to do this. So the soldiers would come along at an appointed time, and here you see it's because of the Sabbath, and this was a death accelerator. Certainly, uh, when you look at this, is this would be more of a mercy to them, and they're certainly going to die there, probably not too much longer, and this would have been a mercy to them on a certain level, but ex- an extremely agonizing one as well. We're not given further conversation between the dying thief that Jesus saved and Jesus himself, but we do learn an invaluable lesson from the thief. In fact, you know that we learn many good lessons from this thief, and a lot of stuff is is pinned to him, as it were, because there's a lot that goes on with this thief. But the interesting thing to me is that this thief would be able to trust in Christ amidst this pain and agony up until death, but trusting in Christ does not necessarily mean that all of your pain is going to be relieved. As a Christian, we understand that all of our pain will one day be relieved. All that you experience in the agonies of life and the torments of your soul, the, the aches and pains within your body, all of that's going to go away. That's good news for those of you who experience extreme chronic pain. It is wonderful news to know that in glory for all of eternity, in your glorified body, no aches and pains, but trusting in Christ here in the present on earth is not necessarily going to alleviate all of that pain. And that's something that you have here with the thief on the cross is that although he has trusted in Christ, it's not as though it's a get off the cross free card. He still has to go and endure this agony. And until his last breath was drawn, this man could rest in the promise of Christ. That he would be in paradise with his Lord and Savior, covered by the freshly spilt blood of Christ. And brothers and sisters, so it is with us. That when when death comes to us, No matter how long the journey is, and no matter how you die, whether you die in a split second or whether your suffering is a long illness, we have the promise of paradise. That all who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins hold fast. We hold fast to the unwavering commitment and the promise from Christ. Because when a Christian dies, no matter how his legs are broken, as it were, he receives the same eternal joy as the thief on the cross. Yet while this saved thief and the other would have to have their legs broken, look at verse 33. What what does he say of Christ? Verse 33. But coming to Jesus... When they saw that he was already dead, did not break his legs. What you find in verse 33 is that it was the cross alone that killed Christ. It wasn't going to be the 
breaking of his legs that would ultimately bring him to his end. It would be the cross that he would endure all the way to the end. It would not be the soldiers crushing the knees of Christ in order to ultimately kill him. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that it would be the will of the Lord to crush Christ and the instrument of Christ's crushing, as we see here, would end up being the cross. And so they did not crush his legs because the leg crushing was a means to the end and the end had already come for Jesus. Jesus was dead. And you know, the death of Christ is certainly something that has come under uh, uh, scrutiny from liberal liberal theologians. That for those who would question God's word, if you question the single most important reality of the entire history of the planet, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you begin to try to poke holes into God's word and to try to figure out, well, Jesus certainly couldn't have really risen from the dead, so we have to come up with some kind of a, a way to make that happen. So maybe Jesus wasn't dead. To use the example from the Princess Bride, maybe he was just mostly dead. And so there he is on the cross, mostly dead. And so when they laid him in a tomb and then his disciples could come after a few days, maybe they stored some food and water so they could kind of clean him up, lay some new linens there and kind of figure out a way in order to make it look like Jesus was raised from the dead because he was just mostly dead. Maybe this was, as the kids say these days, maybe this was just a big psyop. It was just a big psychological operation. And that the whole thing about Jesus was intended to deceive, right? It was just intended to to make it look one way, but it was actually another thing. And that his disciples were off somewhere planning on getting him back up to speed after a few days, and then he would be resurrected and all the rest, which is, of course, complete nonsense. But to the rational man who opposes supernatural events, he's attempting to maintain some level of consistency. And you and I recognize for a man to sustain all that Jesus had sustained and to get up after a few days like nothing was wrong would certainly have been impossible unless he's the son of God. Even when you consider what they do to him next, look there in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So while they do not crush his knees, causing him to remain unbroken, they do pierce his side. And this gives Jesus his fifth injury with his two hands with his two feet, and then his side. They pierced the side of our Lord, and the blood and the water began to pour out of it. Now, when you dig into the commentaries, the theologians start to sound more like doctors at this point. How did both blood and water come out of his side? And they start asking all these questions and coming up with all these things and even citing actual doctors and all of the rest in order to give some sort of explanation on how water comes out of Christ in this particular moment. And so they'll start talking about things that I have no idea about, like the pericardial sac. No idea what that is. But apparently if it's pierced, blood and water can come out. 
Others start talking about hemorrhaging within the pleural cavity. No idea what that is. I assume I have one, but I have no idea what that is. But they just start to surmise, well, how exactly does water come out? How exactly does blood come out? What is that supposed to look like? And the reality is, for me anyways, it's far more interesting to think about the fact of the matter. Regardless how it worked physically and how water and blood ended up coming out of our Lord, what matters to me is is the biblical notions going on here or the theological ramifications of what is going on when Jesus' water and blood begin to pour out of him. And of course, many have surmised over 2,000 years of church history as to what exactly is going on where this blood and water come out of Jesus' side. Let me give you a few of them. Some have said that Christ being pierced on his side is akin to Noah's ark door being opened. Or Christ's side being pierced was kind of like Adam's side when God opened up Adam, took out his rib, and formed Eve out of his side. Or there was a theory among the Jews that when Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, that not only water came out, but also blood came out of the rock as well. Or... Some have posed, and maybe you more readily would guess this, that the water and blood from Jesus' side could be pointing us to the ordinances of the church with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, that last one is, is one I'm not personally absolutely concluded on, but I do think John is telling us something but noting for us this water and blood from Christ Pierce's side. I, I, in other words, I do think there is something going on here that John is conveying and that there is meaning to why he is recording for us that water and blood came out of Jesus's side. And we do understand John has used these various metaphors and these kinds of ideas. I mean, we, we talk, we've talked about water within the Gospel of John several times. The woman at the well with water. He tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born of the water, right? There's obvious reference to water within the Gospel of John. And of course, blood is a constant theme in the Gospel of John as well as the entire Bible. So uh, water and blood within the context of Scripture is a really important picture. And what do we understand that water in the Bible pictures? Blood pictures the fact that our sins have been removed, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, the Bible says. So when we think about blood in the context of sacrifices, we think about blood as providing a removal of our sin. It's a remission of our sins. It's a removal of our guilt. It provides satisfaction. It provides forgiveness. And then, of course, with water, what does water picture within the context of the Bible? Water seems to picture purification and cleansing. And so we do understand that blood in the Bible is what provides the remission of sins. We understand that water provides purification and cleansing. And so blood is needed in order to take care of our guilt, and water is needed in order to purify us. You sin because you're a sinner, you are a natural born sinner. And as such, you bring guilt upon yourself because of your sin. You bring upon yourself uncleanliness. And what takes care of your guilt? It's the blood. It's the blood of Christ. Who takes care of the unclean? What takes care of the uncleanliness? It's the water. And so is there a visible connection here to baptism in the Lord's Supper? Well, maybe it's worth further study. 
But certainly the water and the blood pouring from the side of Christ points us to the fact that his blood has forgiven us of our sin and the water has cleansed us. Augustus Toplady says in his wonderful hymn, Rock of Ages, he says, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. But notice with me the final few verses here, which provide a great testimony of the faithfulness of God's word. Look at verse 35. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Now, before we think about these verses, let me encourage you in something that really has been going on for quite some time in the church for a couple hundred years. Stop neglecting your Old Testament. Don't neglect the Old Testament. The Old Testament is what the apostles are using in the first century in order to prove their case that Jesus was the Christ. The Old Testament is vital for our understanding don't neglect it. Don't disregard it. Don't focus solely on the New Testament. We need the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. So make sure that you are diving deep into the Old Testament, right? So so often when we come to it, we can kind of feel how culturally different it seems or maybe how wooden it feels or how distant the scenarios are with, within it. But it's important for us that we make sure that we are holding to God's word as pertained in the Old Testament. And I think that our ignorance of the Old Testament is so often displayed in our inability to find Christ within its pages. You should be so filled with God's word within the Old Testament that when the key of Christ is given to you, you can then go through the Old Testament and you can see Christ on every page. You can see how he is very readily there. You notice that the apostles never seem to have a problem where their ignorance of the Old Testament is, is, is bringing about an issue in relation to Christ because they're so filled with the Old Testament. So when John sees what is happening with Jesus on the cross, when they pierce the side of his Lord, he at least comes to see that as a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And so that's what you have in verse 36. What does he say there? To fulfill the scripture. So Christ, although he is not the active agent, as we discussed earlier, in that he is physically moving and making decisions and whatnot, this does not mean that everything that happens to him post-death is not the will of God, because it absolutely is the will of God. Even as he hangs here on the cross dead, and the water and the blood pour out of him, he is fulfilling the word of God. Not a single bone would be broken. What Old Testament passage is being referenced here? Well, of course, I read for you earlier Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 makes this clear reference in verse 20. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Now, when we, we think about this as a possible option for the fulfillment, because John doesn't actually say, well, back in Psalm chapter 34 and verse 20, it fulfills this scripture. He doesn't make that exact correlation. He just simply quotes the Bible. So several options could be given as to what John, what scripture from the Old Testament John is referring to. And 
I'd rather think about the three options available to us as various levels, or maybe there's a, a more surface level, obvious answer like Psalm 34, but then you start to dig into it a little more and you begin to see that there's more to it. And so here, I think you do have a reference likely to Psalm 34, 20, where he does say, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now certainly, that seems to be a great and obvious connection. That, that here you have one of the great ancestors of Christ. And David is ultimately saying of him that not one of his bones, not one of the bones of Christ would be broken. But I think we can continue down the portal further and deeper into the Old Testament and move from the poetical books into the law. But I need to remind you, before we do that, of what week it is right now. What week is it in Jesus, well, as he's died, but what week is it when he dies? It's the Passover, isn't it? It's the Passover week. And do you remember what Moses says in regard to the Passover lamb in Exodus 12? It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. The same is reiterated in the book of Numbers. He says, they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break a bone of it. Think about this. There they are in, in, in Egypt, in bondage, right? They're about to be, have the exodus and come out and all that. But in regard to the commands given to them, in regard to Passover, and every single Passover, year after year after year after year, for millennia, right? What's going on? What's going on with that lamb? What are you not to do to that thing? Don't you dare break a bone of it. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. The bones of the Passover lamb were never to be broken. And you might ask yourself, well, why? Why, are we not, why were they not to, to, to break any of the bones? I mean, when we slaughter an animal, we have no problem taking a bone and running it through one of those bandsaws. Right? 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 At Thanksgiving time, you have your turkey, and you take the wishbone out, and you dry the thing. And what do you do? The two kids, they take it, and they pull it apart. They break the bone, right? We have no problem breaking those kinds of bones. But in Passover... You do not break a bone. You don't do it. This is why a Passover lamb bone was never to be broken for millennia. So that the Passover, with a big giant finger, would point forward to Christ, whose bones would never be broken. It's wonderful that the ultimate Passover lamb, his bones would not be broken. And so Moses would say, don't break a bone of the lamb. And then say, quote, according to all of the statue of the Passover, they shall observe it. And then what could Jesus say as he comes along? He could say, as to all the statue of the Passover, I have fulfilled it. Not one bone would be broken because, as Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians, Christ is our Passover lamb. Very explicitly so. One with shed blood one who had been pierced and water and blood flowed out, but one who had not a single bone broken. But there's one more Old Testament passage John wants to draw us to in verse 37. 
And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Now, this is far more clear as to where this comes from. And this does come from Zechariah 12 in verse 10. And they would, wouldn't they? They pierced him in their hardness of heart, in their hatred of him, as they despised him. They looked upon the one whom they had pierced. You know, very differently, we look at him as the one who was pierced without the callousness that they looked at him as one who was pierced. We may have looked at him at one point with callousness, not caring that he had been pierced. But here, now, as those who do believe that Jesus is the Son, in believing we have life in his name, we look upon him not with a callousness, but with a reverence and a love and a joy. Jesus was the unbroken yet pierced Passover lamb. He's a complete fulfillment of what the Jews had celebrated for thousands of years. And despite all of their attempts to maintain their religious ceremonial cleanliness so that they might partake of Passover, they unjustly kill and pierce Jesus. I so far rather be counted among those who stood at the foot of the cross on this day. I rather be counted among the thief who died next to Christ, believing the promise. Certainly it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But as one who has been forgiven by the work of the Lord, I want to be considered as one who is at the foot of the cross, forgiven of my sin, looking upon my Savior, knowing that it was for me he died. For me, his hands and feet and side were pierced. That his blood is what provides the removal of my guilt, the forgiveness of my sin. And the water that flows from him provides all of the cleansing that I need. As the old hymn writers wrote, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. Let's go to him now in prayer.